You are listening to the Equip Podcast. This weekly course seeks to equip our church, and we pray it can help you as well. Check out more resources at rockycreek.church. So go ahead and turn in your scripture to the book of Revelation. That's in the back of the Bible, by the way, just in case you're looking for it. Uh, It is either that book of the Bible that you love to go to or you avoid like the plagues written in it. Okay, so uh, typically that's the the two types of people that you find. And tonight we're going to look at it hopefully in a different type of way. So as we've been going through different uh, genres of literature, we're now at that last section that would say, how should we interpret apocalyptic literature? Doesn't that sound just scary? It sounds like a scary movie. Um, And so while Revelation is going to be kind of where we're focusing in on, uh, some other places in the Bible talk about the end of things, apocalypse, apocalyptic, if you will. Um, Daniel would have some moments like that. Ezekiel would have some moments like that. But really the, the big boy is Revelation. And I think what's so hard is a lot of people miss so much of the beauties of this book due to, I would say, the small percentage of stuff that I don't think anybody can figure out that you miss probably 90% of it that most people at a simple read could go, that's great and glorious and I want to you know, just rejoice at it. So tonight, what I want to do is I want us to open up a little bit, hopefully, and unpack some things on this because uh, as, as we look at it, while the entire Bible has interpretive challenges, none is so difficult to navigate as the book of Revelation, right? There is a lot in here, uh, and if you are hoping that I am going to answer all your questions tonight, you will be sorely disappointed, okay? In fact, uh, I might raise some more questions for you than actually answer some of them. Uh, despite the debated details, the main point of the book is full of glorious and guaranteed promises, and that's what we want to focus in on tonight And I want to um, read the opening words of this book, Revelation chapter 1, verse number 1. It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now just really quickly here, notice something. Is revelation singular or plural? Singular. So we'll get to that in a second, but just note that. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. I'll take that tonight. Thank you very much. Okay. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Now, let's stop there for a second. He says in verse number one, these things must soon take place. And in verse number three, for the time is near. Does anybody want to guess how many years ago that was written? About 2,000 years ago, right? So obviously, God's uh, timing and our timing is a little bit different, right? And y'all know that. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards us, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And he goes on and says that with, with the Lord, one day is as a what? Thousand, thousand years, a thousand years, like one day. You know, it's just all kind of like, well, can we just all get on the same time zone, right, God? Like, what, what's going on here? But our understanding of time is, is very different than the way that God would see things. And in fact, there's a, um, uh, I think, a, a, a needed truth for us to even understand this. If you were to visualize, you know, typically when people think of God the Father, the one, God creating the heavens and the earth, 
typically if people were to visualize, I know that God is spirit and I know that, but when we think of God, if you think about the paintings that you've seen, what does God typically look like? What's his hair look like? Long and what color? White or gray, right? It's got to be that, right? Because he's obviously what? Old. I mean, been around a while, right? Okay, you don't want to say it. Like, I can't say God's old. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, he's old. But, but you would think that. But here's, here's something you need to understand. There's a difference with someone being old and someone being eternal. So in think of this way, we grow old. God does not. We, we grow old, we get old, we get ancient, we get decrepit, right? But God, but God doesn't. God, God is eternal, and there's a huge difference there. So in his timing, when we understand things, we're like, come on, God, you got to hurry things up. And he's like, hurry things up, I've been around forever, okay? Like, and so this is not the way that we would see things. He says, look, he sends his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God, the testimony of Jesus Christ. Uh, many of you know this, but when Jesus sends out the disciples, right? Uh, any of you know what happens to most of these disciples before all is said and done? All, all, yeah, they go different ways. Uh, Paul, or well, Saul at the time, starts a persecution that sends them running and sends them scattered, and most of them uh, run away from each other, going to different places on mission trips. And here's what you need to know about the 11 original disciples, if you will. All 11 of them, at the end of their life, were separated from the others. In fact, if you look, and there's only, um, I think James is the only one that's mentioned as being uh, killed in the scriptures, but the rest of them, other historical accounts, that all 11 of the remaining disciples all die in different places, different countries, different ways, all separated from each other. Why is that important? Because if all 11 of them died and say they, they died in Israel and they were going to be killed if they did not renounce Jesus, you can understand how 11 of them could say, come on, guys, be strong to the end, right? But you separate them. If it was a lie that Jesus got up from the grave, guess what? One of those 11 are going to break, right? Somebody's going to break. Because you got this one who's being speared to death over in India. This one's being beheaded over here. This one's being crucified. You get to Peter and they say, we're going to crucify you if you, uh, st- unless you stop telling people that Jesus rose from the grave. And you know what Peter said? I'm unworthy to be crucified like Jesus crucified me upside down. And you go, denying Peter? <laughs> Peter, who's scared of a little girl at the, you know, the eve of Jesus' crucifixion, I, I don't want to... Like, this, is, this is the picture of it, right? So John is a disciple, as we've been learning. We've, he's the one who also wrote First John we've been going through as a church. He wrote the Gospel of John. So in the Bible, John is responsible for John, First John, Second John, Third John. He's not very creative with his word. And then we get to Revelation, right? So John is a Gospel. The First, Second, Third John are letters he writes out in Revelation. Is this vision that he gets as the last remaining original disciple because like all the rest he had the opportunity to denounce jesus or die and he said i'd rather die than denounce jesus so they put john in a vat of burning oil and he survived and they got him out and they got really scared and you know what they did next uh, they moved him on an island called patmos which is what you would understand something like alcatraz it's an island where prisoners go to die and this is where he sees a revelation. He gets a vision from Jesus. And so as we go through it, I want us to think about is this what, 22 chapters in the revelation. Some at least starter rules for us as we go. First one is this. As I already mentioned, the book is what? One, one revelation. Okay. So I don't know why, but in the Bible Belt, we typically see revelations. Have you ever heard? We typically say, you know, the book of revelations. 
It's not a book about many revelations. It's a book about one revelation. You go, is that important? It's very important. Because these aren't just collected kind of like psychedelic dreams that John's having. This is a vision that God gives him. One revelation. God revealing himself to John. It's one picture that he sees from chapter 1 to chapter 22. Next we notice that revelation is something called symbolic, folks. If you're not aware, there are some symbolic stuff in here. And, and with this... Y'all getting like a strobe light going on with this computer here for a second. It's going to stay in, hopefully. Revelation is symbolic. There are some stuff in there that is um, symbolic. Uh, I'll give you an example, and this is what makes it very challenging for a lot of people because you'll read something and you go, how do I know what's symbolic and what's literal? Okay? You know, um, i give you a great example. If you ever get a chance to talk with Jehovah's Witnesses, they would believe that there is a literal 144,000 people that are going to be a part of this section of heaven and whatnot. And so I asked one time a Jehovah Witness friend of mine who was coming to the house every Saturday. We'd spend some time together. I said, so do you believe the book of Revelation is symbolic or literal? I believe it's literal. I said, everything? He's like, yep. I said, everything, everything? He's like, yeah. He said, you know, 144,000. I said, so you believe there's 144,000 people that are getting in? He goes, yep, I do. And I said, so you're here with your buddy. I said, do you ever worry like one of you is going to like inch the other one out? You know, like maybe you're going to be a little bit better than the other one. Like you're 143,900. He's like, no, we don't think like that. I said, I would. I would totally think that way if I was a part of this. I'd be like, I'm going to do better than him. I'm going to get the last spot, right? He goes, no, we don't think of it like that. And I said, but you believe it's a, it's not a, he said, what would you think? I said, I believe it's a symbolic number. He said, well, why? I said, symbolism. I said, 12 times 12 is 144. You got 12 tribes of the Old Testament, 12 disciples of the New Testament. 12 is important in God's thinking. So you got saints from the Old Testament, saints from the New Testament multiplied to a high amount. I think it's a symbolic number of saying that people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue are going to come together to run Jesus. And he goes... We think it's literal. I said, okay. I said, do you think the whole book is literal? He said, yeah, I think the whole thing is literal. I said, okay. Well, then let's go down to see, uh, like, in, in certain areas, it's going to say, like, in the next little bit of time, in chapters 2 and chapters 3, there's some interesting things that are set, uh, said to these different specific churches that he calls out. In fact, you, you might notice in there that there are different subheadings. The church in Ephesus and, and uh, the church in Smyrna and different things like this. If you look at chapter 2, verse number 1, it says, So the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And in a few verses throughout different sections, he's going to look at these churches and say, you got seven angels, seven churches, and I'm going to come in and I'm going to take some of your lampstands away from you. And I asked my Jehovah's Witness friend, I said, so you think all of Revelation is symbolic or literal? It's all literal. I said, and then all of a sudden he starts dying laughing. He says, you're asking me, do I think Jesus Christ is going to come and steal a lampstand from a church? I said, that's the question, brother. He said, okay, well, maybe some of it's symbolic. I said, aha, I got you. Okay, so some of it is symbolic then. How do you know what is and what's not? Because that's, all, that's, that's the major area that we disagree on Revelation is some of you would read something and go, that's literal. That's exactly how it's going to happen. And somebody else would say, no, I think it's symbolic. And that's where most of the issues come in. Okay, So we do have to realize some of Revelation, at least some of it, is symbolic. Now, just because the content is difficult to understand does not mean one should avoid studying it. Okay, Just because the content's difficult doesn't mean you need to avoid it. Doesn't mean you need to ignore it, neglect it. 
you need to say, I want to understand this because Scripture says, blessed is the one who reads it. Blessed is the one who reads it out loud. Blessed is the one who meditates on it. And so I want to know these words. The primary meaning of Revelation is just like what we said all semester long. It's what the original author intended it to mean. And I really hope this will stop for you guys. I promise. I, I should have played a trick on y'all. Like, what are y'all talking about? Your eyesight's wrong? Okay, so not good. The, the primary meaning of Revelation is what the author intended it to mean. So with this, we have to say the author, the divine author of God, the human author of John, as he compiles these things together, what is he trying to teach us? Next, the understanding of the original audience must guide our interpretation. As we have done with every book, with every genre of literature, we have said this. You have to know what is the original audience interpreting this. So before we ever read the book of Revelation, guess who read the book of Revelation? A group of Christians who are on the run from the Roman government. We're going to kill you if you keep preaching about Jesus. And if we can't interpret it through those lens, folks, we're never going to arrive at the original meaning. It has to start there. So as we said before, before it was ever God's word to us, it was God's word to them. Right? There's somebody back there that read this book of Revelation before we did. So we have to at least uh, think through what that looks like. So the understanding, the original audience, must guide our interpretation. Next, you have to trust me on this one. Um, don't ignore the first century Christians and simply interpret the message for us. Once again, start there. Go to the first century Christians and, and look to see what did this message mean to them. So, if you were a disciple on the run, right? If you were worried you were going to be beaten, imprisoned, or killed... What would this message mean, impact, imply for them, encourage them? And then we can start really interpreting what this message truly means for us. Uh, another rule here, don't allegorize the symbolic details. Don't go too crazy making up your own story of what you think this is and what you think that is and, and making up all these different versions of it. It's very, very dangerous to do so. So don't allegorize the symbolic details. We want to know what is the true meaning, the original meaning, the, and even in some of this, this may sound hard in the book of Revelation, but what the simple meaning of the text actually is, right? Don't misuse it. Yeah, don't misuse it. That's exactly what Satan would do, right? Misuse Scripture to his own agenda. We don't want to do that. All right, next. Here's the genre of Revelation. As we look at it, there's different ways to look at it, but what Revelation is so unique in its uh, efforts is this. Number one, the revelation is as apocalypse, okay? It speaks of the end times. Apocalypse, once again, end times, that uh, this is a letter that is speaking future-oriented to the end of all things, the apocalypse, okay? I don't know how to help this at all. I think the revelation as... Technology apocalypse over here as well. But the, the Revelation as apocalypse, it speaks of the end times. Uh, number two, the revelation as prophecy. So it spoke to the church's current situation. Okay? So when prophecy is, what is the word? What is, that, what is it trying to teach us? So the revelation's prophecy is this. It spoke to the church's current situation. Here's the church trying to form, grow, live, operate in the nation uh, and, and the empire of Rome, and how is it supposed to continue to work? So as prophecy, it spoke to the church's current situation. So even in its future-oriented, uh, you got Christians who are dying, being beheaded, being imprisoned, and this is speaking to their exact current situation. Number three, the revelation as epistle. That is the word we talked about last time. Is 
The Revelation is a letter like Romans through Jude are also a letter. You can, but you just touched it and didn't do any more. You just stay right there. Okay. Um, the, the Revelation as epistle. I'm serious. Whatever you just did. Okay. Just your presence. Okay. Um, I mean, isn't Eli's incredible? He does a great job. Okay, so the, the Revelation as epistle, it was written in the form of a letter. This was John writing a letter just like Romans was a letter, just like 2 Thessalonians was a letter, 1 John was a letter. It's going out to people that he sends out into it. So it's written in the form of a letter. And so this is what makes it so unique. There's not a lot of writings that are anything like this in those three kind of ways. Um, here's the context of Revelation. <laughs> You're good. If it messes up again, come over here, okay? All right. Um, the Apostle John was the only surviving member of the original 12 disciples when he was exiled on the island of Patmos. Okay? Just a refresher. The only surviving member of the original 12 disciples. Judas went first. James went next. All the way down to all remaining disciples. John is the only one left. Um, you know, one of the... One way to think about it, and some of you may have experienced this before... If you are the last surviving sibling or the last surviving group of someone in a family, they're just kind of like, oh, there's this group that used to be together, and I'm the only surviving member. There's something weird about it. John was the only one who knew what it was like at the Transfiguration left. John was the only one who knew what it was like that, that, that night that Jesus called that sort of thing. There's just some, he's the only one left. So obviously, um, he's later on in his life, um, he is... He's been walking with Jesus for a while now. He's the only one left. Now, John had previously survived an attempted execution by burning him in oil, as mentioned. He's uh, came close to death and obviously intimidated and scared all the people who were trying to kill him. Uh, in fact, the end of John, one of the interesting things is, is if you remember, um, uh, Jesus does this thing to Peter. He says, after they did the whole fishing experience after Jesus is resurrected, he says, do you love me more than these, Simon? He's like, you know, I love you. Why are you asking me that? You sure you love me? Of course I love you, Lord. Are you sure I love you for the third time? He's like, that remembers. I feel like somebody asked me three questions a few days ago. Oh, that's right. Um, when I denied you three times, he says, okay, three times I'm going to ask you. And he says, you know, care for my sheep, tend my flock, take care of my sheep, right? Over and over and over again. And so Peter's walking and John's walking alongside and then Peter says, what about him? And he says, if I want him to stay until the kingdom of God returns, what's that to you? You follow me, Peter. Don't worry about anybody else. And then John puts at the end of his gospel, now a rumor went out, because Jesus said that, that that disciple, speaking of himself, was not to die. It's not what Jesus said, okay? But couple that with the moment he's in the vat of burning oil, not dying, there was like, ah! so John's status just went legendary, right? So he survives this execution. He's living on Patmos as he awaits his death. <clears throat> he receives a revelation from Jesus speaking to the current issues and the future hope. So something's taking place in him, right? He's awaiting his death. He receives this revelation from Jesus speaking to the current issues and the future hope. So here's a picture that he gets that he didn't have to get, but I imagine was very encouraging to him and also very encouraging to us to say this. John, um, Buddy, I know things are hard in your life. He's like, hard? Are you kidding me? So the day I said I'd follow you out of that fishing boat, it has been a crazy few decades. He said, yeah, and um, it's going to get crazier out there. And so I need you to write this down because there's going to be people after you that are going to want to give up. And this book is to hope and encourage them. Keep going, right? Keep going. 
So here's, here's the issue. The church and the state are in a collision course, and the initial victory appears to belong to the state. The state, in this case, being the Roman Empire, the church of Jesus Christ, the state, they're on a collision course. Initial victory appears to belong to the state. Why is that? Because they are uh, beating, arresting, murdering, Christian after pastor, after missionary, you name it. The Roman Empire's influence is so massive that no one seems like they're going to be able to get over this hurdle, that Christianity is going to be snuffed out like so many other religions that popped In fact, in the book of Acts, there's this beautiful um, story that when uh, Peter and John were uh, being arrested at another point, that they were about to kill them. And there's this elder statesman in the Pharisees named Gamaliel, who actually was Paul's mentor as a young boy. Gamaliel says, just send these guys out for a second. Let me talk to you guys for a minute. Okay, look, look, look. Um, this, we've seen this before, right? Peter and John, guys like this, religious fanatics, just going out in the name of their founder. And remember what happened? So-and-so grew up, and they had a big you know, momentum happening, a big group around them. And guess what? We killed the founder, and guess what? All the followers went away. And remember that time there's this other guy that came up and started speaking? We killed the founder, all the followers went away. We've killed Jesus. So guess what? These followers are going to drift away and just go into nothing unless... They are of God, and if they are, you better watch out. Right? Now, here's the picture, folks. They killed the founder. They killed all the next-in-line original disciples and a few thousand others. And guess what? On the other side of the world 2,000 years ago, we're still obsessed about this man named Jesus. Right? So Gamaliel's point was spot on, right? Hey, kill him, and all this thing will go away. And yet, they killed him. They continue to kill, continue to kill. And this movement kept going forward. This, this picture of what was happening in Revelation. Christians at that time who refused to worship Caesar as Lord were considered rebellious to the state and suffered persecution. So they've got the, the issue of the Jews that are persecuting them because they're following Jesus. Then also they're asking you to worship the emperor of Rome as Lord. And these true uh, disciples of Jesus Christ will not do it. And so it's based at this. Hey, you can follow Jesus as long as you also bow the knee to Caesar. And they say, we bow to no one other than Jesus. And so in times of also, you might have heard uh, names like Emperor Nero, which is one of the worst um, genocidal maniacs that's ever been in the history of mankind. And that's saying a lot because there's been quite a few of them. Um, he was so against the work of Christianity that in the Roman Colosseum time, he would take a imprisoned Christian and make them fight for entertainment against a lion or a bear or something like this for entertainment for Rome. Emperor Nero hated Christians so much he actually would take Christians that they had imprisoned because they would not deny Jesus and he would put oil on them and light them on fire in his garden to light his way at night. This is how sick and twisted this emperor is at the time. So you understand why... These people might say, we need a word of encouragement. <laughs> they just, do you have anything for us? Because they're refusing to worship the emperor and move on from this. So tribulation of the church was being experienced at that time and promised to continue. So tribulation in the truest sense of the form, like just trials, tribulations, hardships, you name it. The church is experiencing that at that time. And Jesus is saying, folks, it's not going to go away. It's going to continue. 
And, and so with this, they, they know it, they, they, they feel it, they, they believe it's going to continue, but they, what's the word that they need to hear from God? So the, here's the outline of Revelation, how it kind of pulls out. This will help you out a little bit. Uh, chapters 1 through 3 introduces John, Jesus, and the seven churches to whom Christ is addressing. <clears throat> so it talks about John, it talks about Jesus, uh, the message that they're having. And then chapters 2 through 3, he goes and names seven churches uh, and says, let me tell you some things. And in most cases, here's what happens. He'll say, hey, this church, let me tell you all this good stuff you're doing, right? Proud of you here, proud of you here, but I got one thing I want to talk to you about, right? And it's what he says to Ephesus. In Ephesus, he says, you've done all these great things, but you've forgotten your first love. There's no, there's no affection in this. There's no desire in this, no delight in this. You get to the last one at the end of chapter 3. He looks at the church at Laodicea, probably the most popular one, right? Because he says, hey, I'll tell you this, look, um, uh, in fact, go to chapter 3 for a moment. Uh, chapter 3, verse number 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor what? Hot. Whether you were either cold or hot. So because you were lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Ah, uh, Okay. This is a passage of scripture many of us have read. You've probably heard uh, messages on it before, Bible studies on it. And I love this passage. But here's what's very interesting to note. So Jesus says there's a city that he's writing this, to, this church in, right? The city's name is Laodicea. So if you were to go on a map, what you would find out, and you go through historical documents, Laodicea was a city that had no fresh water supply. Okay? No fresh water supply. So guess what they had to do to get hot or cold water? They had to get it piped in from somewhere else. So they had hot water piped in from a city called Eropolis, miles away. These huge aqueduct systems that would pipe in the water from Eropolis, so these little hot springs that come up, they'd bring them over here. Over on this side, there's a city called Colossae that had cold, refreshing water, and they built all these aqueducts and get the cold water. So imagine you got your hot water and your cold water coming in. But what happens to hot water when it travels through miles of piping by the time it reaches the Laodicea? It's no longer hot, but lukewarm. And you got water traveling from Colossae all the way in. And instead of it being cold by the time it arrives to Laodicea, it's no longer cold, but it is lukewarm. Can I ask you, when is the last time you ever asked for lukewarm water? Okay, or what good is it? We typically want what? Cold. Yeah, cold or hot, right? On a hot day, I want cold for this. You know, on a hot, I want a hot shower. I want a cold drink of water. If you've ever, I can remember uh, playing sports in high school and you you know, if you run out to the, the watering trough, right, you're just wanting a cold water, and if you and you put your mouth on the spigot and it's lukewarm, what do you want to do? <laughs> right? You spit it out, and this is what Jesus is saying. That's what you make me want to do. And, I, and so we've typically interpreted this passage of Scripture like this. Okay, he either wants you all the way in, he's on fire for Jesus, or else, you know, you don't be in here altogether or whatever. He, he hates this middle ground, riding the fence. I, I get that. But once again, this was written to what city again? Laodicea, who knew what it was like to have lukewarm water. And what was the issue? Why didn't they have hot water? Why didn't they have cold water? They were too far from the source. You know why I want to spit you out of my mouth, Laodicea? You're too far from the source of the water of life. And you're getting it down the pipeline, and it's not hot, it's not cold, it's good for nothing. If you think that I'm lying about that interpretation, 
Verse 20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and eat with me. Typically, we hear this at the end of an evangelistic message where some person goes, Hey, sinner, the Lord's knocking on the door of your heart. Won't you let him in? The only problem is, is this was written to, uh, to a church. This letter was written to Christians and not non-Christians. Why is that important? Because apparently the people that God is supposed to have a relationship with, he's outside the door of the church knocking. Too far from the source. So Jesus writes these letters to seven specific churches. And can I tell you some shocking news? He gave them some warnings that if they didn't do this, they were going to perish. And guess what these seven churches are today? All in ruins. Every single one of them. And so I remind you that because... This example is not every church is promised to endure throughout all times. You listen to the words of Jesus and you apply them or, or else, right? So the, those are chapters 1 through 3. If someone preaches through Revelation, they typically end at chapter 3 and move on. I promise you, one day when we get there, we're going all the way, baby. Okay, chapters 4 through 5 uh, displays face-down worship of the Lamb of God who reigns in heaven. These chapters. Oh, my goodness. I would maybe want to run through a wall. Uh, You've got all these angelic feet, uh, creatures going around the throne, uh, worshiping. In fact, go to chapter 4. Um, what, what you see is this, this beautiful picture of uh, verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 4. It says, around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders. Once again, here's 12 and 12, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. So here are these people. Who are the 24 thrones? Some people would say, okay, 12 from the Old Testament, 12 from the New Testament. Well, whoever it is, you get a throne in heaven. You're a pretty special person, okay? I'm saying you, you did something noteworthy in your lifetime. And what is absolutely amazing is if you go down to chapter 5, verse number 7. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. You get this picture? There's, there's one throne in the centerpiece of heaven. And there's 24 thrones. 12 on this side, 12 on this side. If you get a throne in heaven, I think you're somebody important. And yet when Jesus walks in the room, they fall on their face. You're in a throne. Stay up there. Now when he's here, they fall on their face before him. It says... Worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. There's all these people coming together in this. Chapter 6 through 7 presents the conflict of what's taking place at uh, the seven seals and 144,000 of Israel sealed, sort of saying, hey, here's going to be this picture of things getting a little bit worse before it gets better. You need to know. You go down to chapter 7, verse number 9. He says, After this I looked, behold, a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, the palm branches in their hand, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Here's this picture of what heaven is to look like. Here's this picture of people who were martyred and, and killed for their faith and yet reaching heaven and their reward being right there in front of them. Chapters 8 through 11 reveals the content of God's judgment. This is where it gets a little bit scary. There's trumpets and all kinds of interesting things that are taking places. Uh, angels coming in, two witnesses, seventh trumpet, all this kind of stuff. Now, once again, you read it, it goes, some of this stuff I don't understand. Okay? Go to chapter 11, verse 16 for a moment. You may not understand what the seventh, seventh trumpet does. You may not understand when it comes and what all that it entails. Can you understand this? And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worship God. Is that clear enough? 
Hear these important people in heaven going, this is our job, saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. Was that what? Even that sentence right there. The nations raged, but your wrath came. Folks, do you feel like that there's any nation in your mind that seems to be raging against God Almighty right now? A few of them out there? You can't tell us what to do. We'll do whatever we want to do. They raged against you and you reigned. And your wrath came at the right time and you put everybody in their place. This is a picture of what we know to be true. Chapter 12 through 22 provides details regarding the judgment and Christ's triumph. You go through here, once again, there are certain sections of Scripture that is very, very unique. Very, very hard to understand. There's a lot that you can get. Look at chapter 12 for a moment. <coughs> chapter 12, verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the world. All right, now when people start talking about dragons and serpents, that sounds scary. Did he just tell you who he was? Hey, here's a symbolic picture of this dragon. Well, what, would, what did Satan first come in the garden looking like? A serpent, right? Here he is again, going back to that original form. Devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, his angels were thrown down with him, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Anybody ever felt like Satan was in your ear accusing you of all the wrong you've ever done in your life? That's a pretty accurate picture, isn't it? Uh, I don't know exactly when that comes or all the time. Hey, you get that? I get that. Satan tell me, you're never going to amount to this. You always mess up. You've got too much issues in your past. Accusing, 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 accusing. And the issue is this. Typically, he's pretty accurate. Right? I've given him plenty of material to go by. Y'all ready for something good? Verse 11. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even to death. How do you defeat the accuser? By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of your testimony. Jesus died to set me free. And my testimony is this. I am redeemed. I don't have to listen to your lying ways anymore, Satan. I don't, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not defined by you. He's accusing, he's accusing. He stands before God. Travis doesn't deserve this. Don't you understand what he's done? And all I hear is blood, blood, blood. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Testify, testify, testify. Yes, that's who I used to be. But now Jesus has changed me. Now, in the middle of this, there's a lot of stuff we don't understand. But folks, we can get that, right? We can get that right there. Um, let's look at reminders for interpreting Revelation. Go through these rather quick. Know this, not every detail in the picture presented has to be literally fulfilled, okay? There are going to be some things that you read that not necessarily, literally going to be fulfilled. Big picture of it, we, we understand. Big picture of it, things are going to be bad, it's going to get better, right? This is the, the big picture we, we make sure that we understand. Also know this. Revelation includes both veiled predictions of the future and abstract yet sure interpretations of the present. So, veiled predictions of the future. What I mean by that is, there are some things that we know are going to happen, but it's not giving us all the details specifically. And why wouldn't he just give us all the details? You know why? Because if God gave us all the details, we would stop reading the word and stop praying so much. Oh, I got it. Okay. See you when you come then. No, 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 no. You need to stay alert, stay ready, right? So there's abstract yet sure interpretations of what's happening in the present. Information provided indicates the reality of the coming events 
and not the actual details of the events themselves. So sometimes through symbolic language, he's painting a picture and I would encourage you to, to do this. Don't get so stuck in figuring out every detail that you miss the big picture, okay? Um, you get caught up in the weeds, you major in the minors, you make the non-essentials essentials, and that's what typically where people get way off in understanding this book. Satan knows his time is short. That means limited, by the way, not necessarily soon. So we got a Revelation chapter 12. Satan knows his time is short, so he causes a lot of issue. An old preacher friend used to say like this. He grew up on a farm. He's like, Travis, you ever seen what happens when you, you take off a chicken's head on the farm? And I said, no, sir, tell me what happens. Well, when you cut a chicken's head off, the scary thing is they don't just fall over. They keep moving around the farm a little bit, scratching up the dust and running into stuff, making a big thing, and then eventually they're going to fall over. And I said, okay, what's that to do with? He said, the cross of Jesus Christ was a head blow to Satan. And all that he's got the power to do now is just to walk around the farm, kicking up a lot of dust, running into a lot of stuff, making a lot of chaos. But he knows he's about to drop. His time is about to be over, and it's limited what his influence and power is going to be able to do. And so he picks up the pace and also turns up the temperature, so to speak, in the persecution that he gives us. So don't expect to comprehend fully what events have already taken place and what circumstances have not yet occurred. Um, I love people who study this book as if it is their job, and some, I guess, it is their job. But the people who feel like they have understood every single detail in this book make me nervous. I just don't think that God inspiring John to write symbolically, and in reality, some of this was written to Christians in the Roman Empire, that they got certain things that we don't do to context. Oh, I see what you're saying there, because the context they were in. And we're removed from it, and it's hard for us to understand every single detail. So sometimes, be honest with you, you read this book and go, wait a minute, we're talking about something I thought that already happened. And sometimes the book, it seems like it's, let me remind you of, of what took place here and make sure you understand the depth of it all. And realize this is very interesting. Revelation has more Old Testament references than any other New Testament book. Isn't that interesting? More than any other New Testament book, probably the next line has to be Matthew or Romans, um, has more Old Testament references than any other New Testament book. Why is that important? Revelation is not an oddball just out there, just kind of, I'm just going to write. This is all, this is the culmination of God's story given to us through the written power of his word. So as we understand that, it helps us get a big picture of it. Specific details do not always accompany unfulfilled prophecies. So, for anybody here tonight who wants to know very specifically, but when this happens and this is going to happen, God does not give us always the precise details to that. We have to understand to believe this reality. So with it, not always specific details are there. Uh, give me an example. The Antichrist is ambiguous in the New Testament. Just so you guys know, or just a reminder, I'll make sure that I've said this a few times. What is the only book in the Bible that uses the word Antichrist? It is not the book of Revelation. It is? I love you all so much. Okay, you've been listening. First John is the only time that the word Antichrist is used. Is the Antichrist referenced to in the book of Revelation? Oh, you better believe he is, right? But it's also very ambiguous about it. There are certain things that we know. But there's also certain things that have led us to all different types of beliefs. So in, in the Bible, there it talks about this... 
this blow to the Antichrist figure that should lead to its death. Kind of a head blow, right? But it's not going to lead to his death, and everybody's going to remark about his um, recovery, which means that anytime anybody significant in history has anything weird on their head, there was like, that's the Antichrist, right? I'll give you a great example. There's a book that talks about different uh, people who've thought about it through the years who the possible Antichrist could be. People used to think Mikhail Gorbachev would be. How many remember Gorbachev? Anybody remember? Remember that birthmark or that whatever that red thing he had on his bald head? People thought he was the Antichrist because he has some kind of skin condition, okay? That might be a little too far reaching a little bit. So a lot of times we're trying to figure out these details, and, it, and it's left ambiguous for a reason. Read this book as God's culmination at what he started in the beginning. So if we read it, we realize this is not just something random that's put together. This is the culmination of what he started in the beginning. So, in fact, I want you to go to chapter 21 to help us understand how this is all coming full circle to this. Last, last point on your outline before we read these verses and conclude for the night is this. In the midst of all the stuff that's hard to understand, here you go. The main point of the, this book is the simple truth. Jesus wins, folks. Okay? Jesus wins. And you go, well, I, can you tell me what the score is going to be in the third quarter? It's not going to look good. Okay, I don't know when the third quarter is in. The fourth quarter starts. I don't know. How, I, I don't know all that stuff. I can read it, read it, read it, and I don't think I'll get it all. I think probably we're going to get to heaven one day, and Jesus can be like, "That was cute," but actually, this is what that means. In fact, when Jesus was on the earth, do you remember what he said in Matthew chapter twenty-four? No one knows the time or the day when the Son of Man is going to come back. Even the Son doesn't know. So make sure you understand this, people of God. There are some people on this earth who think they have more information than Jesus did while he was on earth. I've got it all figured out. i got a chart in the basement. It tells everything. Okay. You are saying to me, you have more information than what Jesus does. Here's the culmination, right? I'm going to read through a few of these verses, these last two chapters. And um, verse, chapter 21, verse 1 then I saw not heaven and earth, I saw what? New. new heaven and new earth. He doesn't just say new earth, folks. Apparently there's going to be a new heaven. New heaven, new earth for the first heaven and the first earth that passed away and the what? Sea was no more. Everybody, like anybody here like to go to beaches? Apparently there's no beaches in heaven. Okay, folks? Everybody, and when everybody reads that, you go, oh no, what does this mean? This means in the Jewish context... What were they scared to death of more than anything in the world? It was the most intimidating, abyss type of thing out there. It was the sea. You know why? You get on a boat and you go far enough and you don't come back. That's where people die. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, start at the very beginning, right? The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, chaotic, unkept. Who can manage them? The Jewish community were scared to death of the sea because that's where you go out to die. In the picture of heaven, symbolically, literally, whatever this is, say this. The thing that you're scared to death of dying is not present in heaven. There is no chaos there. There is no fear there. There is no abyss there. Um, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming where? Down out of heaven from God. All right? Go back to the beginning of the book again. Genesis chapter 11, remember a time where there was a group of people trying to build a city and build a tower? And what were they trying to do? Get up to? And this says that there's a city coming down from heaven. Reversal of Babel taking place right here before our eyes. Man tried to make their way to heaven, but heaven would have to come down to man. 
uh, says, um, Come down out of heaven from God, repaired as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Y'all get that? That sound good enough for you? Sound like a good retirement package for anybody? Like, that sounds good. I, I, I'm in for that. Verse 5, and he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Anybody got some old stuff in their life you want Jesus to make new? This is, this is good news. He said, write these words down for these are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. What's that? Well, then he says uh, comma, the beginning and the end. Alpha was the beginning of the alphabet. Omega was the end of the alphabet. I'm the beginning, the end. I'm everything in between. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without what? Without payment. Okay. Goes down some beautiful things there. Look, look down at verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Why did the temple exist in the Old Testament? To represent the presence of God because we messed up. This was a taste of what it was like to be in the presence of God. But what in heaven don't we need anymore? We don't need a temple to re reveal or symbolically bring us together in the presence of God. Why? Because he's there with us. Then it goes no further. Ready? Verse 23. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. What? What do you mean? It means just like the first days of creation. Day one, God said, let there be light. Day two, land and water. Uh, 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 day, uh, sorry. day two was sky and water. Day three was land. Day four is what? Sun, moon, and stars. You mean day one, two, and three, there was light when there was no sun, moon, and stars. Where did the light come from? It was God Almighty. Where's the light going to come from at the end? God Almighty. No lamp. No sun. We don't need that. Why? He's the light. Ready for this? Through the middle of the street of the city, also on the either side of the river, the tree of what? Back from the garden, tree of life, back here so we can live forever. With its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, the people group. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. You worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, and that they may enter the city by the gates, outside of the dogs and sorcerers, the sexually immoral the murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root 
and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this gift that you gave a revelation to John to be able to help see the future, to know this. We are on a collision course with this state of this world, but we know who wins. And as long as we are aligned with you, that is the goal. There will be a day where we don't need a temple, we don't need a light, we don't need anything. Because Jesus Christ, you will be with us face to face. Help us to love this book because it speaks so well to you. It's the name of Jesus we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. See you all next week. Thank you for listening to the Equip Podcast. Make sure to check out rockycreek.church for complete notes and additional resources. You can also subscribe to this podcast and get weekly courses delivered to you. We hope to equip you for the work of the ministry.